You're listening to the Mens Rea Podcast, and this is the story of Elaine O'Hara. Welcome to the premiere episode of the Mens Rea podcast. This is a bi-weekly true crime podcast, and we'll be looking at crimes that occurred mainly in Ireland and the UK. To start off with a bang, we're going to look at a crime that shook and captivated Ireland in recent years. It has it all. Affairs, kinky sex, a disappearance, and ultimately, death. This is the case of the death of Elaine O'Hara and the prosecution of the now-notorious Graham Dwyer. Elaine O'Hara was born on St. Patrick's Day 1976. She was the eldest of four children, living in the suburbs south of Dublin City. Her mother died in March 2002. Throughout her early life, she struggled with mental health problems. She had a number of suicide attempts and was hospitalised for the first time at 16 in St. Edmundsbury Hospital. She was put on a cocktail of various antidepressants. In her teenage years, recurring themes of interest in bondage and subservience associated with her lack of self-esteem and confidence were noted by the professionals around her. Throughout her 20s, she was in and out of mental health facilities and established a long-standing relationship with her mental health care team. The sudden death of her psychiatrist in 2007 hit her particularly hard. She worked as a childcare assistant and was studying towards a BA in Montessori school teaching. At weekends, she also worked in a local corner store. In August of 2012, she had booked some time off from her weekend job to help volunteer at the Dublin Tall Ships Festival, a weekend festival taking place in the city centre, and by all accounts, she was looking forward to the experience. She wasn't outgoing by nature so taking part in the event was going to be a big personal achievement for her. Elaine had arranged for her stepmother to meet her so that she could get a lift into the city the morning of Thursday the 23rd of August, 2012. But Elaine never arrived. She didn't turn up the next day either, and her father's worry went into complete panic. They contacted the local police, telling them that Elaine had not been seen in two days. Her apartment looked as if no one had been there in that time either. Given her history of mental health problems, suicidal thoughts, and self-harm, the police took her disappearance seriously, and when her car was spotted parked near to the cemetery where her mother's grave was located, a full-blown search of the seaside area began. Her apartment was searched, and her mobile phone and laptop were taken for examination by the police. It was then that the degree of Elaine's involvement in the BDSM lifestyle was fully revealed to her family. There had been one incident many years before when, during an argument with her father, Elaine had angrily shut down the conversation by revealing that she was having a BDSM relationship with a married man. At the time, her father wasn't sure how true the statement was and thought that maybe she had just blurted it out to shock him into silence. If that was the case at the time, 
It had worked. Eventually, police investigations revealed that Elaine was a member of a number of fetish and BDSM websites, and even had the phone numbers of men that she had met on those sites in her phone. The Gardi contacted the eight men that Elaine had been in touch with, all admitted to having been in contact with Elaine, and two had even met her and had sex. One said that things hadn't worked out between them because Elaine was into, quote, more extreme practices than he was. None of these leads panned out, however, and despite the fact that these men shared her out-of-the-norm fantasies, none were suspected in her disappearance. Despite a thorough investigation, police thought that it appeared likely that Elaine's disappearance was the result of a suicide. Investigations revealed that the last person to see Elaine alive was a jogger at the park beside the cemetery. She had stopped to ask him directions to a footbridge that would have brought her to the seaside. She had left her phone, cigarettes and other personal belongings behind, in her car and in her home, before walking towards the seaside. The jogger's description of her described a woman seeming distant and disconnected. Given her proximity to the seaside, her history of hospitalization and self-harm, and no results from a thorough search by the authorities, the conclusion was drawn that Elaine had taken her own life. Fast forward to the 21st of August 2013. A local dog walker routinely brought her dogs to a field near to some woods in the hills on the west side of County Dublin, on Kilkey Mountain in Rathfarnham. And as she was packing up, one of her dogs, Millie, brought back what the dog walker presumed to be a deer bone. Gradually, over a number of weeks, Millie retrieved bones from the forested area and brought them back to her owner at the end of their walks. The woman stacked them near her parked car and continued on with her routine. Two weeks later, anglers on the other side of the mountains near Roundwood, County Wicklow, discovered a black and red rucksack in shallow water at the Vartry Reservoir. They thought that the rucksack might belong to another fisherman, but they couldn't get the bag out of the reservoir with the equipment that they had. On the 10th of September, another group of anglers were in the same area, and around sunset they noticed something else in the shallow water. The water was at the lowest level seen in the reservoir in years, despite the heavy rainfall the year before. It had fallen from its normal depth of about 20 feet to only about a foot and a half. Investigating further, they discovered that the somethings that they spotted were something odd. Leg shackles, handcuffs, a blindfold, a collar, human-sized, and a ball gag. They also fished out some items of clothing. The men stacked the things on a wall near to where they had fished them out of the water and went on their separate ways. One of them, however, couldn't get the strange collection of items out of his mind and returned the next day to gather them up and bring them to the local police station, where luckily they were placed into evidence bags and set aside, rather than being disregarded as an odd, random collection of detritus from the reservoir. The police officer on duty at the time, guarded James O'Donoghue, took the item seriously and thought that they merited further investigation. So the next day, following directions provided to him by the angler, he went down to the waterside and had a look for himself. It was blustery and the guard saw nothing, so he decided to return on a calm day 
to have a proper look. Meanwhile, on the 13th of September, the dog walker had followed her dog into the woods after he refused to come back to her during her load-up and came upon the pile of bones her dog had been scavenging from for the last number of weeks. There was also a pair of blue tracksuit bottoms. Suddenly, she had the awful thought that perhaps these bones weren't of a deer or some other animal. These could well be human remains. She fled and called on friends to come out and investigate further with her. It was then that they saw the jawbone. It wasn't an animal that they were looking at. They were certain now. A short time later, the police were on scene. A rusted knife was found and quickly a crime scene was established. The remains had been scattered over a large area due to the scavenging of animals. There was now a suspected murder to investigate. A thorough fingertip search of the area was done the next day and more bones were bagged and tagged, just over half of a full human skeleton. Thus began the quest to try and identify the remains. Later that day, Saturday the 14th, Garda O'Donoghue returned to the reservoir and again could see nothing. He resolved to return again some other time, when the day was clear. The bones found in the woods indicated that the remains were that of a woman, between 27 and 40 years old, who was overweight and had been dead for one to two years. This narrowed down the possible identities of victims, and one missing person in particular seemed to match the remains that had been found. Elaine O'Hara. Soon after, dental records confirmed the match, and Elaine's family finally knew what had become of her. But that's just the beginning of this story. The investigation was on as to what had happened to Elaine, and who was responsible for her death. There was little chance of any forensic evidence, as Elaine had been out in the elements for 13 months. The investigation would have to begin again, and everything gathered in relation to her disappearance would have to be re-examined with fresh eyes in light of her discovery. On Monday the 15th of September, Garda O'Donoghue returned to the lakeside. It was calm and sunny, and he immediately spotted what looked to be handcuffs under the shallow water. He climbed down to retrieve them, and as the bottom of the lake clouded and shifted, he shoved his hands into the silt. Along with the cuffs, he also retrieved a set of keys with supermarket loyalty cards attached, a leather mask, a kitchen knife, an inhaler, and a rope. He collected all the items and bagged them for evidence. He then contacted the supermarkets to see if he could identify who the loyalty cards and the attached keys belonged to. Shortly after, he received word. The cards belonged to Elaine O'Hara, the woman whose remains were found three days previously, instigating a murder investigation. The bridge at the reservoir where the anglers made their strange discoveries was sealed off as a crime scene, and a mobile phone, more handcuffs, another knife, as well as other random junk, was found in a thorough search of the area. Those niggling feelings, the weather, and the coincidence of these discoveries happened all in a way that allowed the investigation into Elaine's death to move forward. Someone had dumped her body, 
and then driven 30 kilometers away to dump her belongings, thinking that neither would ever be found. Not only that, but personal items interspersed with fetish items indicated that the suspect may be somebody from the BDSM part of Lane's life. What should have been a stalled investigation began to ramp up. Elaine's apartment was also sealed off as a crime scene. Despite her financial troubles, leading the bank to seek repossession of the property, it had not been sold or rented out since Elaine's disappearance. In yet another stroke of luck, when the bedding was pulled from Elaine's mattress, blood and knife marks were found. The bedding and mattress were then taken as further evidence in the murder of Elaine O'Hara. Elaine's friend, Edna Lillis, who had been in hospital with her, came forward after seeing Elaine's picture in the newspaper. She told the guardie investigating the crime that Elaine had recounted to her stories about the married man that she had had an S&M relationship with. A nurse at St. Edmundsbury Hospital also divulged information regarding conversations where Elaine seemed to be scared of a man who she said had keys to her apartment. She said she had had a BDSM relationship with him and wouldn't call the police on him because he was married with kids and she didn't want to hurt them. A number of people she worked with recalled times Elaine said she had an on-again, off-again relationship with a man she had met online who had been messing her around and some people said she had told them that he was married. CCTV footage of the lobby of Elaine's apartment building was also scoured for any suspicious individuals arriving to visit Elaine. One particular man was seen attempting to shield his face, and a similar-looking figure was seen with Elaine on one occasion. Her computer was analysed and over 2,000 text messages between her phone and a phone registered to a person named Garoon were discovered. She had saved the messages from her phone onto her computer. The messages outlined a BDSM relationship that Elaine had with a man obsessed by stabbing and killing women. The conversation back and forth revealed that Garoon was the dominant person in the relationship, and much of the conversation revolved around him asking to stab her, and at one point even kill her. She had discussed her wish to commit suicide, and he had offered to kill her coming up with a plan to make it look like a suicide, like she had just disappeared. This Garoon character had even bargained with Elaine. She wanted a child, and he said that he would have a baby with her if she helped him to fulfil his fantasy of killing a woman. A life for a life, he had said. He went so far as to come up with a plan. Eventually, he even came up with a target. He said that there was an estate agent, Rowena Quinn, who they would set up a house viewing with before abducting and killing her. Thankfully, they never went through with this plan, and until Elaine's body was found and the investigation into her death began, Miss Quinn never knew the danger that she had been in. They also discussed the stabbing deaths of Ronald Murray in Glenageary in 1999 and a homeless Romanian woman named Eugenia Bratis, who was found in the Phoenix Park in 2009. Garoon spoke in admiration of the killers who seemed to have gotten away with carrying out his utmost desire to stab a woman to death. Gardie had the cell site data from the phones analysed to show the general location and movements of the Garoon phone to try and pinpoint this man to his location. 
Evidence of Elaine's engagement with fetish websites was found on her home computers, and it was thought that whoever killed Elaine had potentially known her for a number of years before her murder. There were also a number of Word documents relating to BDSM lifestyles, authored by Elaine and also by an A&D word chart. A break in the case occurred when it was figured out that references to a flying competition in the conversation between Elaine and Garoon didn't refer to piloting or fishing, but rather to model plane flying, and the phrase coming fifth in a competition was found to refer to a particular competition held in May 2011. Fifth place in the fun fly event in Shankill in Dublin that year had gone to a Graham Dwyer and the name Graham Dwyer had come up before. His name and number had appeared in Elaine's phone book and computer. Initial research into who this Graham Dwyer was turned up that he was a married architect, living in Dublin and working in a firm called A&D Workchart. It also turned out that Graham Dwyer's work phone and the phone number given when the Garoon phone was purchased happened to be the exact same number with just different network prefixes. The address that the Garoon phone was registered to was also strikingly similar to that of a member of Graham Dwyer's family. The phone found in the lake was also examined, and its number was retrieved. It and another phone were bought at the same time in Dublin city centre. There was only one number in the phone listed, under the name of MSTR, Master, and this number was also listed as David 2 in Elaine's main iPhone. Cell site data was found to link the location of the Garoon phone with the master phone. For example, both are in Galway City on one morning and then in South Dublin two hours and 11 minutes later. That's 125 miles or 200 kilometres apart. The length of the drive indicated that the motorway had been used, which meant that whoever possessed both phones would have had to pay tolls. Gardy checked CCTV footage from the toll plaza on that date, and sure enough, Graham Dwyer's car could be seen going through the toll. Coincidentally, this discovery was made at the exact time that the model airplane link had been made. Things began closing in on Dwyer, although he was completely unaware of this. He was under guard of surveillance because, in order to charge him with murder, they would have to both prove intent and the act of murder, and given the deterioration of Elaine's body, they would be relying on circumstantial evidence only to prove that a murder had happened. It was important to keep a close eye on Dwyer while a cast-iron case was being put together. The unit assigned to him was not used to surveilling a middle-class married architect, but nevertheless, they had to ensure that Dwyer remained unaware of their surveillance to ensure that he didn't flee, and Dwyer did seem to be unaware. He was also now identified in ten pieces of CCTV footage from Elaine's apartment building, once with Elaine herself. Quickly after the pinpointing of Dwyer as the main suspect in Elaine's disappearance, cell site data put Dwyer's work phone and the master and Garoon phones together. They appeared to shadow each other's location across the country. From Donegal to Dublin to Cork, the phones went together, and could sometimes even be further corroborated by toll plaza data, tracking Dwyer's car across the country too. 
But while the location data was helpful, the master phone was still missing, and with it was the contents of the messages between the master and Elaine's slave phone. So back to the reservoir they went, equipped with a metal detector. After a short while of searching in the area where Elaine's things had been found, another Nokia phone was discovered. Another stroke of good luck. The same day, it was discovered that Graham Dwyer had sent Elaine messages from his work phone, and there was no way he could deny knowing Elaine now. The text between the master and the slave phone dating from just before the time Elaine got out of hospital until no more texts were received by her outline a plan that she and Dwyer had for her to be punished for going into hospital and being unavailable for him and for attempting to take her own life without his involvement. She asks him not to hurt her too much and tells him that she's scared of him that she doesn't want for this punishment to be outside, as she's scared he'd go too far. However, they agree that she will meet him that Thursday, and that they will go to a remote spot where he will tie her up and stab her and make her bleed. The text messages trace Elaine's last moments as she requests that she be able to bring her inhaler with her after parking her car at the cemetery. They outline how she crossed into the park and wandered around looking for the railway bridge that would bring her closer to the shoreline. She wasn't sure of where she was going. The last message between the two phones is from the master phone to the slave. Go down to the shore and wait. Dwyer's work phone had been turned off in Dublin city centre just before 5pm and was turned back on close to his home in Fox Rock at 9pm. By that time, Elaine was dead. While the investigation continued, Dwyer was going about his daily life. The guardies surveilling him noted that he didn't appear to be under any pressure, given the discovery of the phones and the ongoing media coverage of Elaine's case. Preparation for the arrest was being made, and Dwyer's interrogation was being planned, and he seemed to be none the wiser. Dwyer was arrested on the 17th of October 2013 at 7am in the morning, approximately five weeks after the discovery of Elaine O'Hara's body in the woods. His house and workplace were searched, and his wife and old girlfriend, who was the mother of his eldest son, were both interviewed. Initially, Dwyer denied knowing Elaine, constantly repeating, that's not my phone, when confronted with the cell tower data. He denied his interest in BDSM and knife play, even after a statement had been taken from his ex that stated she was scared of him and he had brought knives into bed with them. He acted mortified and scandalized for his wife and children and made no admissions, saying that he hadn't killed anyone. After three recorded interviews, the police finally felt that he could be charged. The police finally felt that he could be charged and during the course of Dwyer's fourth interview, he admitted to knowing Elaine O'Hara and having met her to have sex, but stated that she harmed herself and he wasn't into the dom-sub lifestyle that Elaine wanted from him. Dwyer admitted that one of the CCTV images depicted him carrying the rucksack that was later found in the reservoir, but he denied knowing how the bag had gotten into the water. He was aware of her mental health problems and stated that Elaine had asked him to kill her. He continued to state that the phones weren't his, and that he didn't kill Elaine. 
He was formally charged on the morning of Friday the 18th of October and responded not guilty when asked if he had anything to say. In the search of Dwyer's house, a hard drive and computer were seized, which contained not only family photos and pictures of him flying his model airplanes, but also horrific images of mutilated women and violent pornography, some of which was homemade and depicted Dwyer having sex with bound and gagged women and stabbing them with either a play knife or a real one. One of the women was Elaine. He would be held in custody with no bail set until his trial. Sixteen months later, in late January 2015, Dwyer's trial for the murder of Elaine O'Hara began. The courtroom was filled with reporters and members of the public. The state's evidence was entirely circumstantial, focusing on the shadowing of the Garoon and Master phones of Dwyer's own phone in conjunction with evidence putting Dwyer in the phone's locations across the country and his proclivity towards stabbing fantasies. His ex described his acting out fantasies of stabbing her during sex when they were together. Most shocking was the testimony of a young American woman, Darcy Day, who had chatted with Dwyer over email after meeting on a fetish website. Day had fragile mental health, and at the time of meeting Dwyer online, She was suicidal. She was the survivor of childhood abuse, and she self-harmed. She described in detail a plan that she and Dwyer had discussed, where he would come to meet her in Maine, where she lived. She would drive to meet him and get into his car. They would go somewhere remote, and he would kill her while they were having sex by stabbing her or by slitting her throat. The prosecution was pointedly drawing similarities to what Elaine O'Hara's fate might have been. Day also said that Dwyer had discussed Elaine with her, saying that she was suicidal like Day, and that he might kill her and then move on to Darcy. She was insistent that she didn't think Dwyer was serious, and that if she had realized how serious he was, she would have reported him to the police. One of the documents found on Dwyer's computer was entitled Killing Darcy, It was a story outlining how he had met a woman online who wanted to die and had agreed to allow him to kill her. She got her affairs in order and left her home in the US and travelled to Dublin to meet him. He had everything he needed to kill her and dispose of her body. He left her clothes by the seaside and took her to a cabin in the woods where he killed her, filming the whole ordeal. Though obviously a work of fiction, similarities were drawn with what might have happened to Elaine. The story about Darcy showed the jury that Dwyer had thought long and hard about how he might commit murder, and get away with it. After most of the witnesses were heard, the court was cleared under an obscure section of the 1951 Criminal Justice Act, which allowed excluding the public in order to preserve public decency for what was to come. Next, the jury was cleared, and both sides debated whether or not the tapes Dwyer made, involving sex with a number of women, and including the stabbing of Elaine, should be admitted. Lawyers for the state argued that the tapes showed that Dwyer had lied about the level of his involvement in the BDSM scene. He had stated that it was Elaine who was into it, not him. They also wanted to show that, although Elaine had agreed to the activities shown, It was obvious she wasn't enjoying it, and Dwyer was. 
The defense argued that the clips would just serve to shock the jury and paint the defendant in a bad light, and it served no probative value. A description would suffice if the material had to be let in. Mr. Justice Hunt decided that he would have to view the tapes himself first to decide whether they were relevant and whether or not they could be entered into evidence simply by having a guard describe what had occurred on them. On the third day, the court was again cleared and the jury was brought in. Justice Hunt had viewed the tapes. He stated that although it was argued that Dwyer and Elaine had been engaged in fantasy, in role-playing, there was an actual weapon applied to the body in the footage. This went beyond fantasy. The eleven clips would be shown. The O'Hara and Dwyer families also left the courtroom, leaving only the press, jury, and court officers in attendance. The jury were given a strong warning that what they were about to see was disturbing. Many of them looked away as the clips rolled. They showed Dwyer having sex with four different women, one of them Elaine. Elaine is seen crying out in pain as Dwyer prods her with his knife and stabs and cuts her, making her bleed. There were gasps of disbelief and winces as people watched the nearly five minutes of video. Dwyer sat in the dock and flushed ever deeper as the video played. There were a few more days of legal wrangling after this, without the jury present, where Dwyer's defence team sought to have the case thrown out over various technicalities. However, 37 days after the trial had begun, the prosecution eventually rested, and a few days later, after the testimony of a paltry three witnesses for the defence, the prosecution gave their closing statement on the 19th of March, 2013. In closing, the senior prosecution lawyer outlined the evidence linking Dwyer to the disappearance of Elaine, the circumstantial evidence of the three mobile phones, and the content provided by them showed that Dwyer and Elaine were linked, had a relationship, and met the day she disappeared, making him the last person known to be with her. He not only had sexual fantasies about stabbing and killing a woman during sex, but also had the intent of killing Elaine by stabbing her during one of their encounters. This was shown through his propensity to these acts, described by his ex-partner, in his writings and in the videos. His intent to carry out such an act was also shown in the plan that he had to entrap a local real estate agent, Miss Quinn. The prosecution argued that Dwyer's intent in starting a relationship with the vulnerable Elaine was to manipulate her into allowing him to carry out his fantasies, to make those desires real. He took advantage of a woman who had fragile mental health to exploit her for his own purposes and knew that her disappearance would likely be taken for her suicide. He had previously emailed her, offering to, quote, help her take her own life in the past. The state's lawyer went on to outline how Dwyer had a detailed plan that he had worked out, get her alone, away from her apartment, leave her car near the cemetery and the seaside, take her to an isolated area and stab her, dispose of her personal effects. The communication between the master phone, which was Dwyer's, and the slave phone found with Elaine's things in the reservoir proved that he was the last person with her, the implication being that whatever befell Elaine was at Dwyer's hands. 
and the items found in the reservoir showed that she hadn't walked into the sea or committed suicide in some other manner. Her doctors and mental health experts reported that her mood after leaving the hospital for the last time in the days prior to her death was that she was happy and cheerful. Dwyer's defense team opened with Dwyer's own words, taken from the Killing Darcy document. The senior counsel stated that the words were disgusting and that he had never had to deal with such material in a trial before. Yet all of the evidence, taken at its true weight, he argued, did not go far enough to convict his client. There was simply no evidence that Dwyer had killed Elaine. The prosecution was trying to get the jurors to draw inferences from the conversations that Dwyer had had with Elaine and his past behaviour to make the leap to murder, and was trying to shock the jury into convicting. Yet there was no forensic evidence, no definitive cause of death, and no nicking on the bones. Despite the prosecution making the case that Elaine had been in good form before she went missing, he pointed out that the day she had gone missing, she had been seen weeping over her mother's grave, and that suicidal people don't necessarily get all their affairs in order before committing the act. Counsel asked the members of the jury to look beyond the emotional reaction to what they had heard and seen, and asked themselves whether there really was enough evidence to convict Dwyer of the murder of Elaine O'Hara. Disliking Dwyer, or being disgusted by his proclivities, was not enough to find him guilty. The jury was charged on the 23rd of March, and Judge Hunt told the seven men and five women that they must put their feelings about Dwyer as a person aside when considering the evidence, in order to come to a verdict. They were told that it was up to them to decide what material was relevant to their decision-making, and the judge stressed that, although disturbing, the activities they had seen in the clips was consensual. Both parties had consented to what had happened. He brought the jury through the evidence again before sending them out. On their way to deliberations, one of the jury members asked the court, quote, what do we have to find the defendant guilty of? There was some nervous laughter at this statement, but the judge instructed that they were to consider the evidence and return a result of either guilty or not guilty of murder. Due to the confusion, the jury had to be recharged at the request of the prosecution, probably to avoid the possibility of an appeal on that matter. Finally, they began deliberations. It was Wednesday, the 25th of March. On Friday afternoon, the jury filed back into the courtroom and were asked if they had reached a verdict. The response was not what had been expected. They had a question for the judge. They wanted to know what the ingredients were for murder. What did they have to find present in the evidence in order to convict? This was an important question. Murder is a crime of specific intent. It requires both the actus reus, the guilty act, and the mens rea, the guilty mind. If either of those are not present, the crime of murder cannot be deemed to have happened. In Elaine's case, it was not only debatable as to whether Dwyer had intended the death of Miss O'Hara, but it was also debatable as to the manner of Elaine's death. There was no forensic evidence to show that she had been stabbed, or strangled, or died as a result of blunt force trauma. The jury needed to decide if Dwyer had intent, and then carried out an act intended to cause murder or serious injury. The judge explained this to them, and the jury resumed the deliberations. Thirty minutes later, 
The judge had word that a verdict had been decided upon. The jury were brought back to the courtroom, and Justice Hunt warned those assembled that he expected quiet in the courtroom, no matter what the verdict turned out to be. The foreman handed a slip of paper over to the court registrar, who read it and asked, You say the defendant Graham Dwyer is guilty. Is this the verdict of you all? The foreman responded that it was. There was an audible gasp from the O'Hara family, who hugged and smiled. Dwyer's father remained stoic, but tears welled in his eyes. As for Dwyer himself, he had a sharp intake of breath, but remained quiet, slowly shaking his head. Mr. Justice Hunt discharged the jury and thanked them for their service. They were all exempted from jury service for the next 30 years. He also stated that he 110% agreed with their decision. Murder carries a mandatory life sentence in Ireland, but the prosecution asked for the sentencing hearing to be postponed in order to prepare a victim impact statement to be read for the court. Justice Hunt agreed to this. Bizarrely, within an hour of the verdict, a statement to the press was released by Dwyer. He thanked his legal team, his friends and family for their support, and asked for his and his family's privacy to be respected. There was a statement from his estranged wife echoing his request for privacy. There had been extensive media coverage of the trial, and the family obviously wanted to avoid any further attention. She, however, expressed her sympathy for the O'Hara family, and sent condolences. Sentencing occurred a month later, on the 20th of April, 2015. Again, there was a huge public interest, and the courtroom could not accommodate all the people who had turned up to hear the proceedings. Elaine's father had written a moving statement, which was read by the prosecution's senior counsel. The judge again expressed his contempt and disgust at the actions of Dwyer, and duly sentenced him to life in prison. This will be reviewed after seven years as a standard. The actual length of the sentence will depend on the reviews that occur. As it stands, Dwyer is in the appeals process and still maintains his innocence. He has two cases working their way through the court system at the moment. The first is for a breach of his privacy on behalf of the Garda Shiakana, the Irish police, in obtaining his phone records. His legal team will argue that certain provisions of the piece of legislation that allowed the Gardaí to access the records breach his rights under the Irish Constitution and the European Convention on Human Rights. He has been granted legal aid in the case, and the state's motion to dismiss has been denied. The second case is Dwyer's appeal proper. He has been quoted in the media as being confident that on appeal his conviction will be quashed, writing to pen pals that he has gained through his notoriety that he spent his last Christmas in jail. Some of his confidence comes from news that the state coroner was shocked that he was convicted of murder due to lack of evidence regarding the manner of death in his case. He is being held in the Midlands prison, and it appears as if he's having a mixed experience. Many of his friends have deserted him, and he receives few visitors and letters. He's focused on his court cases, and has even been granted a laptop in order that he might properly assist his legal team. Now referred to as Prisoner 883335, he has clashed with a number of other prisoners, and has gotten into altercations with two prisoners thus far. The murder of Elaine O'Hara and the trial that followed rocked Ireland in 2015. It proved yet again that appearances count for very little when it comes to sadistic crimes.
Graham Dwyer looked like a respectable middle-class man, with a wife and a family. He was educated and a professional, and not the kind of person that would engage in extreme bondage or have depraved sexual fantasies. Elaine was a much-loved woman, working towards her ambition of teaching small children. She had a troubled life, and her troubles were taken advantage of, resulting in one of the most unusual intimate partner murders Ireland has ever seen. Thank you for listening to the Mens Rea podcast. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you use. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Mens Rea Pod, or shoot us an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. This podcast is researched, written, and produced by me, your host, Sinead. All sources used for today's episodes can be found in the show notes or on our website, www.mensreapod.com. Our theme music is Queen Song, First Dance by Kevin MacLeod. Till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. Thank you.